Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebod, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Deborah Burke. Deborah leads the internationally recognized firm of Deborah Burke Partners based in New York City. The work of the firm seeks to capture the values and aspirations of its clients and strives to enrich the world around it through enduring design that is mindful of the distinctive qualities of each place. Concurrently, Deborah serves as the dean of the Yale School of Architecture, where she has been a professor since 1988. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including the B Berkeley Rupp Award, and in 2022, she was awarded the Topaz Medallion Prize for Architectural Education. She's both a fellow of the American Institute of Architects and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and she sits on numerous prestigious boards throughout the country, including the Pritzker Prize Jury, one of architecture's highest honors. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. Oh, thank you, Carrie. It's a pleasure to be with you. In preparing for this conversation, I learned that you grew up in Queens, New York, and I read that your decision to become an architect was linked to your early childhood experiences of exploring your own neighborhood. Can you describe this experience and what about it made such a profound impact on you? Uh, that is indeed a true story, although I wouldn't say my early childhood. It was really my early teenage years. Um, the neighborhood I grew up in was called Douglaston. It's a nice residential neighborhood, but very much in Queens. I went to New York City Public Schools. Um, and I would describe it as having three characteristics which still matter to me. It was dense, so the houses, they were freestanding houses. They were very close together. They were varied, enormously varied, both stylistically, lot size, materials, um, and there were lots of trees and greenery. Despite the density of the neighborhood, there was a lot growing all the time. But the story, which is true, is that when I was in junior high school, I had a friend who was in high school and had already decided that he was going to become an architect. And on summer nights, we would walk up and down the blocks of our neighborhood looking at the houses with their lights on, trying to figure out how they could possibly be laid out inside, given what windows were lit and where the windows existed on the volume. And I remember doing one of those walks one night with such joy and enthusiasm that when I got home, I said to my parents, I've decided I'm going to be an architect. And it was really from that moment, I think I was 14, um, that I have had this singular vision of what I was going to do with my life and then what I did with my life. You know, in fact, I'm always fascinated by people who have like multiple careers, me like 14 years old, and here we are 50 years later, and I'm still an architect, you know. <laughs> and do you still find joy in it? I find so much joy and fulfillment in what I do. I truly feel profoundly fortunate. Yeah, in, in hearing you describe that experience, it's interesting um, that your interest in architecture is inextricably linked to the design of the neighborhood in that case, and so by extension, the design of the city. And so your own education parallels that because you attended the Rhode Island School of Design and later uh, where you received a bachelor's of fine arts and a bachelor's of architecture. Um, but then later you decided to go to the City University of New York where you earned a... Um, a master's in urban planning and urban design degree. So I was curious, what was it like to study architecture in cities in the late 70s and early 80s when architects were questioning the legacy of the modern movement and its impact on cities? 
Oh, that is a great and complex question um, that was shaped in part for me. There's the truth of the times, as you just described it, and then there is the more local truth of what life in New York was like uh, when I was at City uh, at City College, and what life in an art school was like. So, in the late '70s, when I was at RISD, was a time still of rebellion, uh, left over from the late 60s, perhaps, but still sort of uh, pushing the envelope. And of course, being at art school, as opposed to architecture school, uh, the artists were, you know, wild and crazily constantly challenging the norm. So it wasn't just rejecting modern architecture or rejecting postmodern architecture, but rejecting all known ways of doing everything as the way to inspire one's work. So I think while I was at RISD, I was pushed to do some pretty out there projects by the criticism from my classmates, not the criticism from my teachers. Um, And a lot of that had to do with designing from the gut as opposed to designing from the intellect. Now, I think flip side, you know, designing from the intellect has many values and I needed to eventually find the balance, but I started kind of designing uh, in a gut responsive way. I worked for a number of years uh, before I went back to school to study planning. Um, And one of the reasons I went back to school to study planning is kind of exactly what your whole show here is about is because that I discovered that architecture by itself and isolated, particularly in how we thought about architecture then, um, really didn't impact how buildings got made, particularly in cities or in any dense environment. And understanding uh, zoning, law, land ownership, uh, return on investment, um, the processes by which development, both good and bad, gets approved, the processes by which infrastructure is provided. Nobody taught me any of that in architecture school. So I went back to school to learn more. Um, And while we do some planning in this office, I really feel that understanding both planning, planning processes and urban design uh, makes me and makes us here uh, better architects. Yeah, provides a more holistic understanding uh, of architecture, cities, and the construction of place. Which I'm, I know we're going to be talking a little bit more about when we delve into the work of your of your practice. Uh, but before we do that, Deborah, it's been my experience that anyone that achieves success in their career has had important guides or mentors along the way. Who would you say um, has been your most important mentor? Always a hard question because I think the instinct or people might expect that my answer would be somebody, either an architect or somebody who educated me in architecture or planning. But I would say my greatest mentors, plural, honestly, were my parents. Um, I grew up in decidedly middle-class background. My parents worked very, very hard to provide us with food and education and, you know, a nice place to live. But most importantly, they were generous of spirit. They were always involved in things for the community, the school board, the planning board. Um, My mother had been a fashion designer and she taught women in communities how to make their own clothes uh, so that they could go to work. It sounds a little corny today, but my parents for their entire lives led lives of giving and generosity. They gave of their time, they gave of their intellect. Once they retired, they traveled around the world and worked in other places, almost like old people Peace Corps, um, because that was how they were structured. Um, So I I learned from them uh, this idea that one should live with grace and generosity, no matter what the circumstances. You can fight hard. Actually, generosity and grace are powerful tools. I actually think it's not a corny answer at all. I think it's an incredibly profound answer because those that have the good fortune to have uh, um, 
parents that provide a strong foundation, I think, are much better suited to go out into the world sort of empowered. So, you know, thank you for for sharing that, honestly. Um, So perhaps we can segue into your successful practice, which is based in New York City, with a very diverse body of work that ranges from small-scale residential projects to large, complex institutional work. On the opening pages of your website, you state that your practice is dedicated to building an architecture that is true to place and life enriching. What does it mean to create a true to place architecture? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to tell you what not true to place architecture is first. And it is something I call spatula architecture. And I call it spatula architecture because if you could visualize a sort of atlas scaled spatula and you could slide it under a building and plop it down somewhere else, then that building is not true to place. And there are many, many buildings like that. Unfortunately, we often see them in big cities, big cities around the world. It doesn't have to be a Western city. Um, they are, gen- they're big, they're anonymous, they're generic. And no matter how long a spatula building sits in its place, no matter how grand it is, no matter how famous the architect is, no matter how expensive it is, it can never grow roots. Um, And so that's what true to-place architecture isn't. (laughs) Um, And I like to imagine that true to-place architecture can barely be moved six inches, but I'll be generous and say you could move it 50 feet, you know, if if you had to, because there was a big tree that needed to be saved. Um, true to place doesn't mean it has to be hokey imitation of what's around it. Absolutely not. It doesn't mean that at all. True to place means speaking of its time, its time of making, of its program, um, but truly of the experiences of that place, meaning that over time, a true-to-place building grows roots and is anchored firmly to that location. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, I guess, an architecture that is both inspired um, by its context, but also seeks to provide a new chapter in the history of the place. That's exactly right. In other words, it, it moves the context forward, but it doesn't erase the context. Uh, so that, you know, I believe cities, broadly speaking, are organic in that they change over time. Uh, ideally, they change for the better. They don't always. There is no guarantee that the organic change of a city, its built environment and how people function in it gets better. But we often see them happily getting better, see cities happily uh, get better. But part of that is when new buildings move the entire context forward. Well, actually, one way that you have done this in your practice, um, create, let's say, a true-to-place architecture, is um, your involvement with a number of adaptive reuse projects of historic buildings. Um, In essence, the transformation of old buildings for new futures. And these projects are increasingly important today, not only for their cultural relevance, but for their inherent sustainability. So how, how do you approach the challenges of balancing preservation with the incorporation of contemporary use and design, and and maybe you could specifically cite an example or two uh, from your own practice to elaborate on that. Let's roll the question back for a sec, because I think it's actually a great segue from true-to-place architecture, because when one does adaptive reuse, ideally the building that you are changing, updating, bringing forward for uh, a new program, say, Uh, has grown its roots and feels a part of that place. So when you start to change it, you are acknowledging its history there. So there is, before we even get to issues of sustainability as it has to do with carbon footprint and material consumption, there is the sustainability of community memory. So for instance, we did a really great project here in New York City called uh, 122CC. So it stands for 122 Community Center, but the building was originally PS122, a public school on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, actually where the original fame was filled. It served the immigrant community at the turn of the 
19th to 20th century and was later abandoned by the New York City Board of Education and taken over guerrilla style by artist groups. And much later on, the city took on, retook on the ownership of the building and agreed to provide these various groups with the facilities they needed. So dance studios, Mabu Mines Theater Workshop, Performance Space New York, Painting Space New York, all in this like 1903 public school. Um, so it had roots in the community in exactly the way we're talking about, meaning grandma could walk by and say to her grandchild in the stroller, when I was a little girl, I went to school there, um, but totally hip New York creatives would go there now to see the latest in painting, the latest in performance art, uh, the latest in in uh, writing, theater writing, latest in dance. So that there's that kind of sustainability. Then, of course, in the reuse of old buildings, there is what we call sustainability broadly, which is the building's still there. So you probably know this, I assume all of your listeners know this, that the built environment contributes more than 40% of the carbon footprint of the globe. That comes about in essentially three ways. Uh, one is the building of buildings, including all the materials that, to go in, that go into it. The second is in the heating, cooling, and running of buildings. Uh, using buildings consumes fossil fuels and many other things. And then there is the demolition of buildings, which is you're essentially destroying the uh, embedded carbon in the building itself, right? all the man hours that went into building it, all the materials that went into building it, and then starting from scratch. So with an old building, you are saving all that embedded energy. And when you update it, you can also have it perform better, right? Use less fuel to be heated and cooled and so on, and give it this new meaning. So at 122, you know, we took the roof off, raised the roof and put a big open experimental theater on the top. We turned old classrooms into painting studios. Um, but this is, I would say, broad stroke uh, sustainability. Mm. Yeah, and uh, for those that are not familiar with the project, I would encourage uh, you to either, if you live in New York City, obviously go visit the building, but if not, um, look at some of the work on on Deborah's website. Um, because actually, as I mentioned earlier, your, your project has a huge range um, and you do many different types of projects. And I would say another uh, focus, perhaps, of a number of your projects is the design of spaces for art making and for art education. Um, and s some of these, I think, are a reflection of maybe your own career as an educator and a practitioner, uh, perhaps that interest. It'd be interesting to hear you uh, speak to that. Um well, no, it's I, interesting because uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Do you want to keep going? And no, 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 go ahead. You? no, 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 go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. A number of our arts-related, uh, particularly arts education projects are adaptive reuse. And, uh, you know, for a while I was uh, jokingly calling it uh, posthumous collaboration um, because at the Rockefeller Arts Center, which is on a SUNY, that's State University of New York campus in upstate New York, it's an IMP building that we renovated and did a significant addition to for today's. It's both uh, fine arts perform and performing arts uh, building as well as craft. So there are ceramic studios as well as painting studios, dance studios, and theater spaces. Um, and so riffing on pay, you know, concrete and single pane glass to uh, 21st century building uh, facing west. West with responsible environmental controls and contemporary art making spaces. Um, at the Yale School of Art, we renovated a Louis Kahn Jewish Community Center and turned it into an art school. Swimming pool became the space for photography students. The gym became the space for the graphic design students. The former auditorium became a black box theater for the Yale School of Drama. So you can find these spaces that have a sort of not just resonant story or name, like this was the auditorium or this was the swimming pool, but actually a resonant volume and proportion that you can bring forward to uh, to a new use. Um, and I, 
I maybe because I went to art school um, because my mom was a fashion designer. Because many members of my family work in creative fields. Um, I really feel at home and comfortable taking old buildings and making them as places for artists to work. No, it's interesting because in listening to your responses to these questions, I see that the broader umbrella under which the art making and art education projects fall is still under the rubric of, let's say, adaptive reuse. But also in listening to you respond, I see the same sensibility of that 14-year-old that was walking around in Queens in the sense that all of these buildings have different languages, they have you know different architectural styles and periods, and I can imagine you walking by them and looking at those windows that exist a certain way now, and then you intervene within them to kind of maybe reimagine those uses and in some cases bring them back to life or in other cases, add to their stories, you know? So I do um, see that there's, to go back to your first answer, there's kind of been a linear trajectory um, in the way in which you approach the design of the built world. You know, it's interesting you say that because I, you know, a lot of our adaptive reuse projects, both, both schools, educational facilities, art facilities, but also things like the 21C Museum Hotels, which are often old buildings, in unusual, as one of my partners says, in the ice tea belt of America, you know, sort of the central Midwest uh, and southern Midwest um, spaces for showing art as well as for people sleeping. Uh, the question is, you know, this idea of how, what do you preserve? These None of these buildings are where George Washington slept, right? They're not really about a historic marker of that kind of that kind, excuse me. Uh, they're much more about the history of one kind of doing and making, transforming to a more current time of a different way of doing and making. And that really is what interests me. And in fact, I think my greatest frustration with dyed-in-the-wool kind of adamant preservationness is that what one needs to do to bring old buildings forward through adaptive reuse is preserve the things that matter, whether it's a, a detail or maybe a volume, but don't feel that you have to hang on to everything just because it's there from before. Yeah. And hearing you speak, I mean, there's many ways that people approach preservation. Maybe yours is closer to like an attitude like Violet Le Duc, where you can actually make additions, uh, you can alter it. You you it doesn't have to be a a one hundred percent um let's say everything stays exactly as it was and um, can't find a way of evolving. So, I mean, I think a lot more could be said about um, preservation today, um, but I think we're coming to um, sort of the break here. And um, when we come back, I'm going to continue to speak with Deborah uh, about her practice, but we're also going to turn the focus to her role as an educator and really a leader within the field as she concurrently serves as the Dean of the Yale School of Architecture. So please do not miss the rest of this conversation and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device. 
including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Deborah Burke. And before the break, we were talking about uh, Deborah's practice and some of the recent projects that the firm has been developing. Uh, but really, from the onset, uh, Deborah, you've led a career in both teaching and practice. Parallel to your um, practice, you're currently the dean of the Yale School of Art architecture. And in 2022, you were awarded the Distinguished Topaz Medallion Prize for Architectural Education. Where would you say your interest in teaching comes from? I would describe it as much more of an interest. It's a literally a parallel career to the career of being a practitioner. And it goes all the way back to um, when I got out of school with my Bachelor of Architecture degree, there was a recession heavy-duty recession and no work for architects. And I got a job as a graphic designer in a global engineering firm, uh, which I did to pay my rent and pay off my student loans, and I hated it. Um, And I hadn't been trained as a graphic designer anyhow, so I was faking it as well. Um, But I started going to lectures at the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies, Peter Eisenman's old think tank here in New York. Um, And they had programs for adults continuing it. They had programs for college students and recent college graduates, and they had nothing for high school students. And I was young. I was really in my early, early 20s. Um, And I went to them with a colleague and a friend and said, you really need a program for high school students. And I had remembered myself having been a high school student not that long before and having decided to be an architect, as I mentioned to you earlier, and having nothing to do and nowhere to go. So starting that program, kind of shaping a Saturday curriculum in the fall that was about cities and a Saturday curriculum in the spring that was actually about the arts in New York and their relationship to architecture, and a summer program that ran for six weeks uh, in July and the first half of August, that was my kind of immersion into teaching. Um, And we invented it on the go, and it was great. So I have been teaching for... 40 years? Uh, Yeah, yikes. Um, But it started that way, um, which is I saw a need and uh, worked with a friend and filled that need. And one thing led to another. It certainly did because <laughs> um, you're you're currently um, really a leader in the field because you're uh, currently the dean, in fact, the first female dean um, of the Yale School of Architecture. And in that capacity, you are in essence leading um, the future or future practitioners um, in both architecture and, and urban design, the design of cities. So, um, maybe the question could be, what are some of the biggest challenges and opportunities from your perspective, um, facing the architectural profession today? Ooh, there are many. <laughs> um, one is something we touched on earlier, which is our role in and our ongoing responsibility to build more sustainably, uh, to lessen the carbon footprint of buildings and the built environment and and, and cities. Um, so how do we do that? And how do we do that as practitioners? And how do we teach students to be able to do that better than this generation does? How does the next generation take on this enormous uh, responsibility to all the citizens of the planet, right? To all the living things, things on the planet. So the, I would name that one first, which is that it needs to be a these questions and their ongo- and the ongoing search for answers 
needs to be fully integrated into architectural education. Um, similarly, the the city does as well. Not that everybody becomes an urban designer, but more than 50% of the world's citizens, uh, humans, live in cities these days um, and not all live in beautiful, what I would call trophy cities, right? People live in really derelict cities or overcrowded cities or cities without adequate infrastructure. Um, so how do we as architects make cities better? And we as practitioners need to ask that of ourselves. And then as educators, we need to integrate this discussion of density and what qualities urban life has to have uh, to better serve the planet in the same way, in the exact same way we talk about sustainability. And right now, people don't hire architects to have that conversation. So I think we need to be a little louder, a little more demanding to join the conversation earlier as cities face uh, the future. Um, I think there are two, two other issues that aren't uh, so easy to describe. Um, fees are one, right? Straightforwardly, how do architects get paid adequately for the work they do? I think there is... A misplaced sensibility is, damn, you guys get to do such great things and you have so much fun and your work is so fulfilling. Why should we pay you? You know, um, so we have to change that. I said that as a joke to a client recently, and he said, you know, nobody ever, ever said that to a lawyer. Uh, so um, I think we do um, need to develop a uh, an economic, economically sustainable model for all the design professions in, in part to encourage more people to go into the design professions. And I would describe the design professions really broadly as ranging from, you know, minuscule nanotechnology and industrial design all the way through to regional planning. So there's scale uh, and all the related professions beyond just architecture, ranging from interior design to structural engineering, mechanical engineering, material sciences, landscape architecture, etc. All of these, we need all of these professions. We need them to be able to do their best work. Society needs to value this work more and pay accordingly. And then finally, and not really finally, one other thing I want to say, but something I don't know how to talk about, but I know is in the future, is AI, not in the sort of the way newspaper columns have been writing about it recently, you know, it's going to replace the college entry essay or, uh, you know, a New York Times op-ed piece. No, what does what is the impact of artificial intelligence on the creation of design. And when it gets beyond words into making images, what is the role of any designer, particularly the architect, in relation to that? And how do we not be afraid of it, but as a profession, learn to use it as a tool? Mm -hmm. um, will be a coming question. I am not the educator to talk about this. It's not my area of expertise, but I know it will be something we should address sooner than later and wisely. Uh, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, maybe I could go back to, to touching upon the economically sustainable model. Do you have any ways of maybe providing some inroads to thinking how we might be able to do that? <laughs> um, I wish I did. Um, I, I can say that I think two parts of it are tied together and that includes engaging architects and designers earlier in the process. So if you tied fees to the work that you were doing, you would do more work at the beginning. You'd be in conversations with communities and jurisdictions earlier in the game. And you would be involved in the process also after the ribbon cutting, right? That you wouldn't just disappear and they'd never see you again, but in sort of a post-use analysis and spending more time learning how buildings function, where they fail, where they succeed, how to make them better. If you expand the scope of services rather than narrow it and then get paid for that work because that work is of value, I think there would be more fees and also 
greater integration into the overall creation of the built environment than just coming in, making the object, and turning around and leaving. Yeah, I think in your answer also, you made me think about a number of other things, which is usually um, how can we as architects and designers make it clear the value it's in a way quantify the value that design adds to the world. Um, because I think when you're able to do that, um, then there's usually monetary, a uh, greater monetary compensation. But yeah. I also wonder if it also has to do with us uh, as educators, again, being an educator myself and also a practicing architect, I think for a long time, uh, talk about money, talk about, uh, you know, s- kind of sustainable economic models were oftentimes off the table because the sense was if you talked about this, you would somehow cheapen the purity of the pursuit of the art of architecture. <laughs> and I And I think that really hurts us because I think that, really talented designers either have to get more savvy at um, understanding uh, economically sustainable models of practice so that they could make a greater impact in the world, or at the very least, they need to partner with people that do so that they have the chance of really um, making more meaningful contribution to the design of our world. So I think you bring up a really sort of touchy uh, point, I think, oftentimes in school. You know, I think um, in some ways developers figured that out a a fairly long time ago. And it's funny, I know you're sitting in Miami, and so I'm thinking of the Architectonica buildings and the opening sequences of Miami Vice a a gajillion years ago, right? Like, hmm, design sells. Uh, What I would like would be for that mindset to be not only in profit-making undertakings, but shouldn't the local branch library be beautiful? And wouldn't that make the elderly go there in the daytime and the school kids go there after school? And shouldn't the public school be filled with light, daylight and the windows open so that the students could connect to the outside? And so that we pay people for good design because everybody benefits from good design, um, which I think developers learned. People make money from good design as, as well. But uh, you know, the restaurateur Danny Meyer uh, wrote a great book years ago called Setting the Table, and he talks about his career. And, you know, his restaurants are famous. They're great restaurants. Food is good. And the service, you could show up in blue jeans or in an evening gown. You get the same service. Everybody's always nice. And he was asked how he trains everybody who works for him. And he used the expression constant gentle pressure. You know, I like the word gentle. I also like the word constant, like you believe something and you go at it again and again and again. Um, And I think in terms of both respecting the role of the architect and the designer and all the related fields that I listed a minute ago and raising our value, it's constant, gentle pressure on Uh, those who hire us and our colleagues uh, to be reminded of the value of what we do. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think in your role, again, as a kind of leader in a studio culture, studio-based culture in your practice, um, which has expanded now to include, you know, I think it's eight partners, if I'm not mistaken, and kind of growing um, number of individuals in practice, but also leading Yale School of Architecture, which again is a design school where the studio culture is really at the center of the education. I was curious um, to hear your thoughts about the way in which you think the pandemic has affected um, the approach towards, let's say, the way in which we work, uh, the design and the way in which we work, and perhaps the long-term impacts of this uh, on specifically studio culture, um, or or maybe more broadly on the way we work in society? So I'm a great believer in studio culture. um, And I think the interaction of people working together on the same design project or on related design projects or different design projects, but seated next to each other encourages uh, mutual mutual learning um, and a kind of family in the best possible way, shared beliefs and goals and ideas and the exchange of uh, beliefs and goals and ideas. Um, So I think uh, the pandemic had a negative impact, which we are slowly 
learning to overcome through things like Zoom, uh, but I believe in a return to a studio environment. That said, I think that the pandemic uh, taught us many things. Uh, I live in the North, and it turned out outdoor life is pretty tolerable. And when it was really bad here in the beginning of the pandemic, and it turned into the late fall of 2020, we were eating outside and it was 45 degrees, right? It's like, whoever did that? Well, it turns out you like community. You like seeing your friends for dinner. Um, So we did more outside. And I think it returned an emphasis to city parks, public spaces, what people could do while outside in order to be together. Um, I think it also taught us about what indoor spaces need, like operable windows and uh, the ability to be cleaned and maybe cost us even to question what are the air handling systems and how are they giving us better, cleaner air so that we feel safe when we are inside. And I would say a positive side benefit is uh, the reduction in unnecessary travel. So there is travel that matters, that initial face-to-face meeting, the walking of a site. But, you know, fly halfway cross country for an hour and a half meeting, get back on the plane and fly home. We don't do that anymore. Thankfully, we don't do that anymore. That was, um, we have learned from the pandemic when travel matters and when it's absolutely unnecessary. Um, the pandemic was stressful for all of us, both educators and practitioners. Um, and I think the lessons have been super important and we will continue to discover more lessons as we both get a little further away from the depth of the awfulness of it uh, and perhaps are smart enough to think about coming threats to our health and well-being and being better prepared to handle them. Yes. Yes. And, and I, I get maybe as a follow-up, I just wonder in your own practice, um, are you, are you all back in person uh, or have you, are you exploring a hybrid model for work? Um, Not only are we exploring a hybrid model, we had a hybrid model before. Uh, One of my longtime partners lives in Reykjavik because his wife is Icelandic and he had a regular schedule of coming to New York. Uh, One of my partners lives in Durham for family reasons. Uh, One of my partners lives in in London. So we had been working this way, which is a balance between studio culture and time working away long before the pandemic and had a lot of things in place. And I think many people were forced to learn this on the run, uh, but are gradually getting better at it. What I don't want anyone to think is that working solely remotely is a good model. I think the community of work um, is really important and valuable. Absolutely. Well, you were clearly ahead of the the game. so in you serve as a role model uh, in the discipline, and yet today, less than a quarter of the licensed architects in America are female, and that's dramatically reduced when analyzing Hispanic, Black, or Indigenous females. We constitute only 1.5% of the discipline. So what can we do, um, or perhaps what have you done in academia and the profession to continue to improve these statistics? This is the work of a lifetime, right? And and somebody else's lifetime after mine. And if there was ever a resonance to the slow and gentle and just keep on keeping at it for as long as you possibly can, because this kind of change comes slow, unfortunately. But I think it starts all the way back in kindergarten and elementary school when students aren't only exposed to math and reading, but are actually exposed to art and making and design, right? You need to know that careers in design are a possibility. So as we take music and art and shop out of schools, I think we're making a mistake. We're not opening people's eyes to all the fields that are out there. Take that through to uh, college and have college be affordable and for people who want to go into the design fields, make it possible for them to do so both financially and by being 
uh, I think, open-minded and clear about what all the career possibilities are. Not everybody is going to go to architecture school and become Frank Gehry. That's okay. There are many, many, many things you can do with an architecture degree, including contribute to your community in lots of different ways. You know, being on your planning board, running for office, uh, being, uh, you know, working in policy about housing and becoming a designer, having a small practice, a medium-sized practice, a big practice, being part of a design team, working as an architect at a university. You know, there's so many things you can do. Um, understanding that all those careers are available to you um, as as a woman, as a woman of a Black, historic, or in, uh, Indigenous background, or as somebody from a socioeconomic background where nobody even thought that architecture, what's that? Like you would look at a profession and maybe say, okay, a lawyer or a doctor, I know those professions exist, but making design professions visible will encourage people to enter them, study for them. That's only the beginning of your question because you use the number licensed architects. So what makes it possible for a woman to stay in architecture? How do we make firms function such that uh, parental leave is available, not just to women, um, to parents, you know? Um, how, how does the practice adjust and adapt to all the new people that are and should be architects that don't fit the old mold, the way old mold, it's so out of date of the sort of gentleman architect who maybe didn't even have to earn a living from the job, right? That is so out of date, but much of practice hasn't changed to accommodate this. So I think I use the expression, you know, it's a slow walk because we've just taken somebody from kindergarten through to maybe age 30, you know, 25 years uh, to get another person who doesn't look like a 19th century architect into the profession for each one of them. You're younger than I am. I think we both have to stay, just stay at this. Stay at it, stay at it, stay at it, because the change doesn't come slow. The change comes slowly, but it is coming. Yeah, and I think with uh, individuals like yourself leading some of the most prestigious um, schools of architecture in the world, but also leading a practice, I think really does serve as a role model because I think um, women need to support other women. Um, and I think, uh, and then I think more, the more women that are in leadership positions in the field allow us to expand on those models because we're living the life that we want to support. So I think, thank you right. for all of the uh, efforts that you have made, both in uh, practice and in, in teaching um, that allow us to expand the definition of what it means and who it is that should be an architect. So, oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Deborah, we're, we're sort of coming towards uh, the end uh, of the interview, but I was curious to know if, uh, if you could share anything that's on the boards, something that you're excited about, maybe an initiative at Yale or maybe a project that you're currently working on the office that you might want to share with our listeners. Um, well, I would say uh, at Yale, we are, um, <laughs> I was going to say guns a-blazing, but I don't like guns, so I won't say guns a-blazing. <laughs> um, we are hard at work uh, educating architects in exactly the way I described early in this conversation, which is to be the best possible designers to celebrate imagination, to celebrate sustainability, to celebrate the urban life, and to make what we build beautiful and delightful, right? I don't want to take in all of my sort of harping on responsibility, beauty out, out of it. And we're doing that at school. And here, I think everybody is entitled to a little bit of beauty in their life. Absolutely everybody. And we as architects, uh, uh, should take on the role of contributing to that. So we're doing that at school, for sure. Um, and I'm also working hard to make it possible for anyone who is good enough to get in to be able to come without assuming a burden of too much debt. Um, and here at the office, we have just completed a project I'm very excited about, which are new residential colleges at Princeton, um, because talking about what student life looks like in the 21st century, well into the 21st century, uh, at a very 
historic and traditional Ivy League institution has been a delight to think about, okay, what models of student life and dormitories, you know, residential colleges or sort of dormitories plus, um, do we hang on to and what aspects of life can we make more communal, more shared, more open to uh, the variety of young individuals you're going to encounter when you go to college. So that's been great fun for us. And we're doing a bunch of science projects. And I think that uh, labs and studios actually have a lot in common. There's uh, individual work going on in a space that offers the sense of community. And so we are learning from the scientists and hoping to bring something to them in how they work together. Fantastic. I look forward to seeing it in person. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So we're at the last kind of two minutes. So I'm asking all my guests, Deborah, what is your favorite city and why? I don't have a singular answer to that question. I have to start by saying New York because I'm a native New Yorker and I love my city. Um, There are two in the Northeast I'll say I like, Providence, Rhode Island and Halifax, Nova Scotia, I think because they are cities of hills and harbors and that appeals to me. And then two that might surprise you, they're sort of opposite, although they're both in in Europe, um, Berlin and Naples. I think I like them both because they are gritty. And I like the backsides of cities, not the monuments so much as the fabric. And Berlin and Naples are endlessly fascinating for walks down nameless blocks and past small restaurants and interesting little shops um, and little squares. Those are the cities I like. I love that answer. Deborah, thank you so much for this conversation and for all of the wonderful work that you do, both as a teacher, a practitioner, and really an advocate for the profession. Um, If you enjoyed this conversation, please join me next week when I'll be speaking with Joel Kotkin, who has been described by the New York Times as America's uber geographer. Joel will describe the characteristics of great cities across time, and he will discuss the surprising urban development trends influencing the design of the American city today. You will not want to miss this provocative conversation. Please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, and please follow us on On Cities podcast on Instagram. Uh, thanks again, Deborah. It was a great conversation. Uh, see, see everyone next week. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 